From the headquarters of the Arkansas Democrat Gazette, I'm Laura Farrar. This is Capital and Scott. Violent crimes, including homicides, have been increasing in Little Rock this year. Murder rates in some parts of the city have tripled since 2021. Most recently, there was a deadly shooting on Easter morning. A day later, two were injured from a shooting in a Waffle House. Little Rock Mayor Frank Scott Jr. now holds weekly public safety briefings about efforts to reduce the violence, and Governor Asa Hutchinson recently announced initiatives to provide more funding for police to help combat the epidemic. On today's episode, Ken Richardson, who has served on the Little Rock Board of Directors for more than a decade, discusses what he believes is driving the increase in violence in Little Rock. Richardson is a nationally recognized expert in youth violence prevention. So welcome to the show. Uh, we have Ken Richardson, who is on the Little Rock Board of Directors. He's a city director representing Ward 2. Thank you for joining us. So you've been involved for a long time uh, with different types of crime initiatives, anti-violence initiatives in Little Rock. Can you talk a little bit about what's going on in Little Rock now with increasing violent crime, with increasing homicides this year, and what you've seen in the past? How does this compare? Well, first of all, thanks for having me here. Uh, I think what's different now than what I saw in the past when I coordinated gang intervention prevention programs, it has less to do with with gangs and the colors of, of red and blue, which were the colors of the Bloods and the Crips, has more to do with conflicts around the color green, around money and money issues. We're not having the same kind of predictable uh, intervention strategies that we had back in the early 90s because gangs pretty much claim specific parts of the city so we could disperse our crisis response team members in those areas and help engage them in a one-on-one basis to show them some alternatives to gang involvement. Right now, it's really it's really frustrating because I think that it's happening across the country. I think at the time in in '93 when we passed the one cent sales tax that funded our prevention and treatment programs, we had a real serious problem with gang activity in Little Rock. In fact, it was so so bad that we even had HBO come in and do a documentary on it called "Banging in Little Rock," which didn't show our city in its best light. But it was a real picture of what it is that we were dealing with and young people were dealing with in specific parts of our city. Now, I do represent Ward 2. My ward, unfortunately, has a disproportionate number of marginalized children, youth, and families. It has, uh, I think, a disproportionate number of liquor stores and convenience stores. I think it has a disproportionate number of vacant homes, boarded-up homes. And those vacant homes become the trap houses, and the trap house is a place where young people use to sell drugs and do all other kinds of legal activities. So that's where the green part comes in when you have trap houses and people selling drugs at these abandoned homes. And unfortunately, uh, I have a disproportionate number of those in, in my ward. I have a disproportionate number of marginalized children, youth, and families. I think my ward, certain parts of my ward, before we did the redrawing of the boundaries, we had uh, unemployment rates that rivaled the Great Depression. And we need to understand the connection between employment and, and crime and violence and unemployment. I think that part of my ward, it was uh, over-incarcerated and, and undereducated. So I think that we need to look at alternatives to addressing the problem with the issues of violence and crime in our community. And I, unfortunately, 
unlike most of my colleagues, I don't think we can police our way out of it. I don't think that we can jail our way out of it. I think community building is the best way, and I base that philosophy on my personal experience doing the work in the early 90s, where I saw crime and gangs strongest, where community was weakest. So I think my approach is, unlike a lot of my colleagues, is community building, help building up some of these communities that these young people are coming from. And I think, unfortunately, we feel like that us funding these programs that are gonna work directly with the young people it's going to be the panacea. It's going to be the be-all, cure-all, but it's not. I think we're faced with a real difficult challenge of not only healing the young person, but we got to figure out how to heal the family that produced the young person and ultimately heal the community that produced that family. So a lot of them come from traumatic environments, traumatic communities, traumatic families, and become traumatic individuals themselves. And for people who aren't familiar with Little Rock, Ward 2 sort of runs from where to where in the city. Well, it used to be from the the midtown part of 12th Street out to southwest by Gower Springs, uh, out to Gower Springs by McClellan High, out in the southwest part of the area. I lost all of the midtown part of my my ward due to the census data and the boundaries changed. Uh, So it was a pretty diverse kind of ward. I mean, you had a ward where you had a heavy concentration of poor minorities, and it spread out to a part of our city that was fairly integrated and everybody wasn't necessarily from a low socioeconomic background. So we had, we had different parts, different representation of what Little Rock is all about, I think. Um, so when you talk to people who live in your ward, who are kind of living this, seeing this every day, what are you hearing from them? Um, what are they concerned about or what do they think is driving this as well? Well, I mean, that's an interesting question because I've made this comment a couple of times and I'll make it again here with you today. You would think that the ward directors, myself and the late great director Hendricks, the ward directors were we're having all these problems. We would be the ones who would be requesting more police. We're not. You would think that our citizens would be the one that are coming out and saying more police. They're not. They're the ones who are talking about alternatives to policing, and they're talking about community building, as we said before. I don't know if, in fact, there's a clear acknowledgement or recognition on the parts of the people who live in those areas of what's the cause of it. I myself think that what we're seeing now is what we saw in the early 90s with young people, with the juveniles, we're seeing it with the young adults now, was a dangerous combination of hopelessness and fearlessness. So more police is not going to make them afraid because they don't have any hope for anything, they don't have anything to lose. So a lot of them live their lives that way. And what we tried to do back then, I think we did a pretty good job of doing that was giving them opportunity to see themselves in a different light, giving themselves the opportunity to see themselves beyond 18 or 19 or 20 or 21. And I think more important than that, we were able to engage in some conflict resolution with really small, small disputes. But if they're not dealt with early on, by the time the community builds them up and makes them tragic, they make them much more large than they are, I think that results in some of the idiotic violence that we're seeing in our community. And I think that's part of it. I think the other part of it is just, it's going across the country. I think this pandemic, I don't know if people just had didn't see their enemies or so-called enemies or people they didn't like because of the pandemic when they got released or freed and they saw people they had beefs with many years ago and then they resurfaced. But we gotta figure out a way to get more conflict resolution and more community-based or street-based interventions, specialists out there in the community 
engaging those young people, not just policing them and locking them up. I don't think you can police your way out of uh, substance use or substance abuse. I don't think you can police your way out of unemployment or underemployment. I don't think you can police your way out of education. You can police your way out of fair housing. There's a number of other social ills that we need to connect to the violence that's happening in our community. Right, but as you mentioned, some of your colleagues, I believe that Governor Asa Hutchinson even announced recently some more resources for law enforcement here to try to encourage more people to work, you know, as a detective or a police officer. And we hear a lot about, well, is, is there enough law enforcement? Are they overworked? But you're saying that you don't think that's the solution. How do you work with other people in politics or on the board who do believe that more police are the answer to to this problem? Well, I continue to provide or try to provide evidence information on best practices that's based on research. Continue to try to get them to see a different picture, a different solution to the crime and the problems that we're having. I think that's a difficult challenge. That's a great question. I've been trying. Unfortunately, I'm the choir member that's out of tune most often and I think if you look at it and if you talk to the young people and you engage the young people and you engage the community, you in fact will know that policing is not the way to solve it or resolve it. It's just not going to work. I mean, you did, given the mindset and uh, the opportunities or lack of opportunities that some of these young people have or don't have, I think that that creates an alternative view of themselves of their community, of the likelihood of them living past a certain age, and, and encourage them to do some real idiotic things. And it makes us have certain parts of our city embrace abnormal cultural norms. You can almost draw a box around the city and determine where the next homicide is going to happen. And why do you, how do you say, why do you well, say that? You look at the data. I mean, look at the information. I mean, look at the, the past. Statistics have shown us that most of them are happening south of 630, east of 430. They're in this area that I'm talking about that are marginalized area where we have disproportionate number of boarded up homes and vacant homes and vacant lots and convenience stores. They're food deserts. They're financial deserts. There are places where young people and families don't have opportunities to, to succeed in positive, productive ways. And we see that, and if we recognize that and acknowledge that that's, that's the truth, then hopefully we'll come up with, with some alternatives to our solutions. I think that you had Senator Elliott on before, and uh, one of your programs before, and I use a phrase of hers, I hope she doesn't sue me for copyright infringement, but. She said that for us, and I'm not particularly saying she was saying the city, but for us as a society, I guess, to say that public safety is our number one priority, but yet we tolerate the conditions that produce some of the idiotic activities that we see is hypocritical uh, at its best, is cognitive dissonance at its worst, because maybe we haven't connected the dots. I think that, that when I worked and I did that kind of work in the streets, working directly with young people, active in gangs, and actively involved gang members. We tried to form partnerships with the police. We had a what we call a Bridging the Gap basketball series down at Thrasher Boys Club, where we have active gang members play a bas series of basketball games with some community-oriented police officers, so they can start seeing each other in different lights and forming relationships beyond the suspect 
in law enforcement. How is this different from gangs? And, and I've thought about this myself, just talking to people. I say, I don't know what's going on. Is it gang violence? Like, you know, what's driving it? What is different between, you know, gangs obviously have surrounded drugs and money and violence before, like what in lack of opportunity. So what makes this not necessarily a gang problem anymore? Well, most of it, in my opinion, and please allow me the right to be wrong in my opinion, most of it is, is based on interpersonal relationships. It's, it's more domestic, and we don't have the people out there to do the conflict resolutions that we did back in the early 90s. I think we need to have street-based crisis intervention teams. I don't think that, that the police are trained in a way to engage them beyond locking them up. And we had to reach out to them, and, and there's some mental health, health issues that, that's definitely needed. And those parts of the community, we need to take away the stigma of mental health services and in minority communities and accessing those services and making that connection between mental health and substance use and substance abuse and education, jobs, employment, unemployment, underemployment. I mean, as I mentioned earlier, there are certain parts of my ward uh, when I started the 12th Revitalization Project back in 2008, the unemployment rate was greater than the unemployment rate of the Great Depression. So give them a chance to interact and operate in ways beyond police suspect. We give them a chance to see themselves as having opportunities that they don't see right now. Give them a chance to see themselves as having a family beyond that gang member, that gang they're claiming. The difference right now, I think, is we don't have anybody out there actively engaging or involving those who are committing these acts. And and I'll give you an example. When the young man that was that was killed at a nightclub, he was one of two. I could almost, based on my past history, could almost tell you where the next series of shootings were going to happen. And they did happen. We had a series of shootings, I think, on 28th and Adams and 28th and Washington uh, in that part of the city based on that guy's family and friends and based on who they thought did it. So you have to, have, you have to engage them beyond policing. You have to engage them in ways that you get them a chance to see themselves and value themselves and love themselves. It's hard for me to love you if I don't love myself. And that's a big problem, I think, with a lot of them, unfortunately. So you're saying that maybe some of these shootings that we're hearing about, again, not we can't don't know for sure, but when you hear about shooting at a Waffle House and there's a shooting at Park Plaza Mall and there's another shooting over Easter, again, we don't know this for sure, but they could somehow be related or related to like revenge or just this dynamic of this back and forth going through these communities potentially. Yeah, no, I think you're right. They could be. That's a possibility. But here's a problem for me is we don't have anybody out there trying to find out. When everybody actively trying to engage the family and friends of those victims to try to find out. We don't know. And I think that's the biggest problem right now. I mean, in the early 90s, we knew. It was Crips Bloods, it was Piru, it was Volks, it was, it was certain gangs that claimed parts of Little Rock. We knew. Right, right now, we don't know, other than the numbers are going up. Sure. And, and I don't think that we're gonna reach that. I think the record, number of homicides we had in, in Little Rock was in 93 when that tax passed. I think we had 76 homicides. And the most unfortunate part about that for me is that we had a, a large number of those young people uh, that were killed that were under the age of 16. 
and then you go to funerals of these young people and you don't see any adults there other than the church members and the people who are working with programs and engaging them, I think that's really, really disappointing to watch them try to help each other grieve through a process without having any adult involvement. And I just think that's one of the problems we have, I've had and I've seen, not just in uh, in my ward, but throughout the city. And this, that box that I talked about, where we have a disproportionate number of these, these incidents happening. So I think one thing I want to ask you, because I, I feel like people will make an assumption or that, that there's sort of a judgment. You know, right now we're hearing there's record job openings. Uh, there was a lot of money that was given out during the pandemic for COVID relief funding to individuals. And I think, think some people might say, well, these people can find jobs. There are opportunities out there. So why aren't they doing that? Why are they, why is this happening if it has to do with money? And, and I think I just want you to sort of dispel why that's just not happening and the reasons behind it so that there's maybe more understanding. That's a good point. When I worked with my, my agency, New Futures for Youth, there was a, a Move the Box campaign that we adopted from the Casey Foundation. And what that means simply is on your job application, have you ever been convicted of a felony, is moved all the way to the end so you can list your skill sets, you can list everything else you have, because most often when it was, that was the first question I asked, when you click yes, went in the trash can. Now to his credit, I wanna, I wanna compliment Bruce Moore, our city manager, who's not just moved the box, he's banned the box, he's taken it off all applications for city jobs, with the exception of there are certain departments you can't work in, being an ex-felon, you can't be a police officer, you can't work in the fire department, I don't think you can work in finance, but they've moved the box. I mean, he's actually banned the box. So I think that, that those record job openings that you're talking about, there's an assumption that a lot of these people we're talking about who commit these acts who have felony records would actually even be looked at in a serious way. I ran into a young man yesterday who was talking about he applied for a city job in public works, and he talked about you know his past and how he thought that was going to hurt him. And I said, well, no, in that that department, it won't hurt you at all. So we need to ban the box, move the box, and we need to create opportunities to help these young people get some skill sets, some job sets. I mean, skill sets, train them in in areas where we say we need employees. I mean, I know there's a need for plumbers out at the Riverport. Not, none of these young people know anybody, anything about that. So we don't have anybody engaging them, getting them in training program to get them certified as plumbers so they can get employment opportunities out there. I was thinking about doing it myself when I found out how much they were making an hour, $60 an hour. I need to go get trained myself. But I just think that we don't, we make these announcements, but we don't have anybody making that connection. Does that make sense? Yes, it makes sense. I mean, I can make an announcement. I got a thousand job openings. You guys should be able to fill them. Well, who's reaching out to them? Who's recruiting them? And who's trying to get them trained and certified for these jobs that we're talking about? And and I'm I'm probably unlike a lot of my colleagues on the board. When we have all these job announcements, whether it's Amazon or any new company into the city, it's kind of like an oxymoron to me. It's kind of like a sad joy. I'm happy that we have these jobs, but I'm sad that the majority of these jobs are going to be filled by people who don't live in our city. And that's an unfortunate reality, that we have people coming from all these other different communities taking jobs that really should be filled by people who live in Little Rock, by people who need the employment 
and my people who need to be trying to engage in ways other than locking them up and arresting them. So do you think that the profile of the person committing a violent crime or someone who's murdered someone is different from someone who was a member of a gang in the 90s now? Do you think we're talking about a slightly different demographic or type of of individual doing this? I'm not necessarily saying that. I'm not sure that's the case. I hadn't done that work. My agency, we closed about six years ago. What I am saying is I think the rationale and the reasoning for the violence is different. They may have the same kind of background. They may be claiming a group. They may be claiming a gang. They may have the same kind of demographics. But the reason for the violent act is a lot different than it was in the 90s, I think. So three months, well, four months into 2022, the violent crime and homicide rates are up substantially. Certainly in some parts of the city, like Ward 2, which you represent, these are tied to very systemic problems that have, are tied to historical roots of just disenfranchisement <clears throat> of minority populations for decades. That's a problem that takes a while to fix. But we're looking at murder rates and violent crime rates that we're not sure if they're going to go down anytime soon. What can be done like immediately to try to curtail these increases? Well, I think we need to be honest about the assessment you just made and, and have an honest an assessment. Unfortunately, sometimes when you have these systemic indictments, people take those as personal indictments. Rather than look at them objectively and honestly, they defend them and not do a proper diagnosis. I would say an improper diagnosis by my doctor would render an improper prescription to solve whatever illness that I have. I think to do an objective analysis, and say, okay, this system is not working. This system is not working. How do we fix it without feeling some guilt or feeling like I created this? I think there's real a tendency for people to get real defensive when you start talking about these systemic changes that you're talking that you're talking about. People don't want to discuss that. Rather than look at that, they want to point back to the individual. During a recent board meeting, we were talking about employment, and I think it was MIT had done an experiment and they had sent about 500 resumes out exactly the same. One name was David Williams, the other one was Dante Williams. Dante got 50% less callbacks than David. And I think the assumption was because was Dante sounds like a, a black name. So, I mean, it, 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 there are systemic things we need to look at. There's also I think some individual responsibility that we need to have people uh, be held accountable for. But we have to show them, we have to teach them, we have to reach out to them. A lot of times they they hadn't seen that, they hadn't had that, they hadn't had anybody reach out and engage them in a way that they need to be engaged. I think chronologically some of them may be 18 or 19, but developmentally still 13 or 14 years old. And that's hard sometimes for us to deal with a 19-year-old like he's a 13-year-old or 14-year-old. If we want to bring them up, we got to come down to their level and reach them and bring them up. And I think that what I've learned during my time doing that work, and I really miss it, was that young people and people, period, will live either up to or down to your expectations of them. And that's the unfortunate reality of a lot of marginalized children, youth, and families. Well, City Director Ken Richardson, thank you so much for joining us today. We'll look forward to seeing how things progress this year, and hopefully some of your ideas and solutions will will be implemented. 
Well, thank you for having me here, and thanks, Nick, for being here and making me sound like I can sing and sound pretty good. Thank you so much for your time. All right, thank you. Thanks for listening to Capital and Scott. If you have any feedback or ideas for the show, send us a message via the link in the description wherever you listen to your podcast. We'll be back next week.